You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we only wish we could write. That would be stupid love. Adam Grotman reads letters from camp that are so funny, they were featured in the book Mortified. I could start fights, I could start rumors. Thank you. I'm Adam Grotman. Uh, when I was nine years old, my parents decided to send me to summer camp for two months in central Vermont in order to toughen me up and also so that they could have a relaxing, kid-free summer. Uh, I grew up in a suburb very close to Boston, Mass., and uh, I was what you call a city kid with strong homesickness tendencies and a fair amount of social sensitivity. The summer camp they uh, chose was a very rugged, rustic place with no electricity or running water and where campers slept in crude three-sided cabins completely exposed to the elements. The kids were also strongly encouraged, essentially mandated, to swim naked, as the native Indians had. Uh, My parents and I exchanged a lot of letters that summer, and I've included several of them here verbatim. Uh, July 5th, 1976. Dear Mom and Dad, Camp is good, and the food is great. Also, when I said I only did two laps between docks, I did four, and I practiced to do six. P.S. I'm kind of homesick, so please visit as soon as you can. Uh, July 11th, six days later. Mom and Dad, I have a very bad cold, and I feel very sick. This is what's wrong. I have a bad sore throat. My nose and sinus are very stuffy. I have awful headaches. I feel very weak. Everybody except for two people in this cabin are assholes. (laughs) Right at this moment, while I'm writing this letter, someone's teasing me and saying I'm faking to be sick. I also lost my knife, and my flashlight still doesn't work. Later that same night, Dear Mom and Dad, I can't hack camp any longer. I'm going to have a screaming mental fit. By the way, what I mean by take me out of this camp is come up here in the car and take me home. I hate this goddamn cabin. I want to see our house and sleep in my nice, comfortable bed and sleep till 10.30 instead of waking up at 7. July 12th. Dear Adam, I guess you've gone through some sad and difficult days. I think it would be better for you not to worry about your clothes and flashlight and things. As Alfred E. Newman says, why worry? She was using Mad Magazine against me, my, my Bible at the time. Maybe when you were really angry at the world, you could go to some private place in the woods and cry about it. That's good. Or yell at the trees. They won't mind. And when you come back from hollering and hitting the ground with a stick, you won't feel angry. Love, Mom. July 13th. Dear Mom and Dad, Camp is shitty and boring. Everything's been going wrong. Such as, one, dot, parenthesis, Jason Kahn borrowed my red short sleeve shirt and lost it. Two, my flashlight still isn't working. Three, I got a cut on my penis when I flunked my canoe test. I'm very homesick. I wish you could arrange so I can only stay one month instead of two. Explanation. We had to do all waterfront activities naked, and you had to capsize a metal canoe for your boating test. So that kind of led to that little accident. 
What I left out from that list was that Terrence, the kid in the bunk bed over me, had accidentally dropped toothpaste down on me and another time dropped a lit candle, which set my blanket on fire. July 14th. Dear Adam, I am sorry that you hurt your penis. Does it still bother you? Love, Dad. July 19th. Dear Mom and Dad, I fucking can't stand this bastard camp. You better goddamn listen to this letter or I'm going to scream. And as a matter of fact, I already screamed my ass off at everybody in this cabin today. I don't goddamn understand why you don't believe that I'm having a conniption. Now I know you hate my guts. Because if you liked me, you wouldn't torture me. Come up here on Saturday the 24th. If you send me one more of those crap letters, I'll rip it up and burn it. July 30th. Dear Adam, think about something you feel really good about. And then before you know it, you won't feel like a gloomy Gus anymore. Mom. Several days after this, my parents drove up and pulled me out of the camp a month early. A few days after that, this letter arrived in the mail from the camp. Dear camp parents and guardians, we regret to have to inform you that yesterday a horrible tragedy struck Camp Timberlake, one of our farm and wilderness camps. A camper was playing around with matches unsupervised and inadvertently started a fire that had spread through the trees and burned two cabins to the ground. <laughs> Side note, that kid was Terrence. The bunkmate just slept over me. And that cabin was mine. The campers from those cabins are remaining at the camp and sleeping on the floor of the dining common. Any and all donations are gladly accepted during this unfortunate and challenging time. So I, I ask you guys, uh, elementary school crybaby or sensitive 10-year-old prophet? <laughs> You tell me. Thank you. Michelle Seip writes a letter dedicated to her ex-coworkers, thanking them for keeping her afloat in what was surely the job from hell. Dear Vladimir, Chen, and Moon Yi, thank you all so much for making my job at Shelf World bearable. I know you all escape from oppressive regimes, and so that's why the oppressive regime of our low-ceiling, fluorescent-lit, Siberian-temperatured office and the strange, cold, flat eyes of our boss all felt okay to you. Every time I escaped from the downstairs to visit you three upstairs, that was my own kind of refugee freedom. It was an escape from the baby cockroaches skittering through our downstairs desk drawers. Okay, I know they were only little babies, hopeful and new, just the way I was when I first started working there, but still, they could kind of get to a person. It was an escape from thinking about our terrible location, an epicenter thrumming amid gangland shootings, delusional rambling, roaming street people, and the let's hope that illegal drag race that's shut down La Cienega doesn't veer head on to me. But it was a paycheck, and that's why I stayed for as long as I could. You can't blame the office for maintaining its low ceilings, fluorescent lights, and 1983 carpet stains. This office began in 1983, and it stuck with what it knew. And as far as the sub-freezing temperatures, so cold that we had to wrap schmadas around our heads to prevent brain ice, that had its purpose, too. I get by on five hours of sleep at night, Ed, our boss with the eyes that look like stillborn grapes, perpetually told us. This temperature keeps me awake. He was the boss, and if he needed to be slightly refrigerated, maybe even pre-cryogenically preserved to function, who are we to complain? 
The three of you, though, your escapes from stifling dictatorships primed you to survive in all kinds of unpleasant environments, ruled by all sorts of difficult power lords. So the shelf world's follies and foibles, <laughs> it was just business as usual. Vladimir, you, the IT guy, you need any help with your computer? Kill me, extension 222. Well, I found your Eastern European life view somehow reassuring and cozily familiar. After all, my own grandfather fled the Ukraine by escaping under a fence, and every time I meet another Eastern European refugee, I hear pragmatic sentiments that echo his. For instance, I'll never forget my first mammogram and the Russian x-ray technician who womaned the machine. When I nervously sought reassurance by asking, will it be horrific? She sensibly replied, Everything is horrific. <laughs> Vladimir, your perspective offered similar comfort. Be careful going up and down these stairs, you told me as we passed each other in the dimly lit stairwell. Very bad story. A lady who used to work here, not young, but fit. She'd race up and down stairs, then one day she fell, broke hip. She never worked again. Then there was that time you installed my desk phone. It has 342 voicemail messages. Every day, go through them, delete three, four at a time, when you have time. Vladimir, whose messages are these? You don't want to know. Bad story. <laughs> That's all you would say, and I figured it was because you didn't feel safe discussing it in front of Ed and his gendarme Francis she of the glowering eyes and tapping fingers. So later, instead of directly calling you at extension 222, I quietly asked you in your office, Vladimir, whose phone was that? What was the bad story? You come to me looking for bad stories, you replied, your face tilted upwards as always. Well, this place is full of bad stories, but I am not authorized to tell you bad stories, of which there are many. I am only authorized to tell you good stories, none of which I can remember. <laughs> and Moon Yi from HR, you and I often chatted in the upstairs kitchen. It was better than the downstairs kitchen because neither Ed nor Francis got upstairs. Francis because she had a bad hip and Ed, well, the whole upstairs just wasn't cold enough. Moon Yi, I really appreciated the way you found drama and intrigue in the everyday and prosaic and how your stories distracted me from the prison-like perimeters of my job. I go to Trader Joe's after work, you told me as we stood waiting for the microwave to ding. I drink coffee, I eat sample, nom, nom, nom. But I buy their sprouted bread loaf, it go bad. I just one person, I can't eat whole loaf. <laughs> On another day, we discussed how sad it was that an actress had killed herself because she was depressed. I depressed, you said. As long as I eat, sleep, poop, I happy. If I no do one of those things, I depressed. <laughs> Chen, in payroll, thank you for being so sweet, bubbly, and enthusiastic, despite our bleak surroundings. On the day that we all had to have our grim, fluorescent-lit photos taken for our employee files, you went out of your way to compliment me. I like your scarf. You smell sweet, lavender. On one of my last days there, I'd misplaced my glasses. I went upstairs asking all three of you if you'd seen them anywhere. 
Of course, it was just another excuse to visit with you. I handed over a drawing I'd done of the glasses. This does not help me, Vladimir said. You should buy a backup pair. Go to cheapglasses.com. Muni, you said, my mother once lost glasses in restaurant. A month later, she go back, tell them she lost glasses. They open drawer full of people's glasses. And Chen, you said, you lost glasses. We stay away from you. You crash car. You run us over. <laughs> Did any of us know then that my chilly meeting with Ed and Francis was imminent? We hired you because we thought we wanted a fun, creative person to write fun content for us, Ed said in his flat, semi-frozen way. Well, Francis sat with her legs crossed, but we are not fun people. I am not a fun person. Francis is not a fun person. They were absolutely right. They were not fun people. Especially when Ed said, creativity isn't sitting around thinking things up. Creativity is ripping off other people's ideas. And so soon after that job ended, as we like to write on our unemployment forms, but Vladimir Muni and Chen you were fun, all of you. And for that, I thank you. Signed, Michelle. Jess McKay shows what happens when an internet scammer, a.k.a. Catfisher, meets an actor willing to perform their role to the ultimate end. So in, uh, in 2008, uh, while I was creating a character for some acting class, I decided to make a MySpace profile for that character. Now here's the story of what happens when one fake person uh, starts talking to another fake person through MySpace. <laughs> Date, July 8th, 2008, 6.58 p.m. Hello, handsome. Oh, this is a letter to this guy. Good morning, how are you doing? I am interested in you. What's up? I saw your profile, catch my attention. Thanks, I will love us to get to know each other. I am a 30-year-old, my name is Juliana, I am new. Have you ever tried online dating and what's your game? What's your prognosis? My dad got killed when I was 25 years old in a logging accident. My mom got killed 10 months later walking down the road. A drunk driver hit her and killed her. I am presently in Nigeria now with my grandma, have been here since I lost my parent in motor accident, am single and looking for that right man to share my feelings with. I would love to hear from you, Juliana. I'm sorry to hear about your mom's accident, but you seem okay now. Thanks. I am interested in you, too. Uh, if you're in Rhode Island, I will take you out for dinner and dancing. Okay? Ride free. Millennium. <laughs> Hello, Millennium. Thanks for your sweet message, and I would love to know everything about you. I am single and looking for the right man of my life. I would love to see more pics of you and everything about you. Hope to read from you soon. Juliana. Hmm. Okay, what do you want to know about me? My real name is Mike, but everyone calls me Millennium. I'm 42. I've never been married. I live with my brother and his wife in Bradford, Rhode Island. Uh, I've been in the welding business for over 20 years. I like bikes and bike shows and fests. Motor. Uh, I have a few tattoos and a beard, you know, nothing pierced. I enjoy the summertime and the beach and barbecues. Let me know if there's anything else you want to know. Keep on keeping on. Millennium. Hello, Mike. Thanks for getting back to me. How are you and how long have you been being on MySpace.com? You are a great man of great achievement. Uh, can you describe yourself in five words? Love you so much. Okay, Juliana. 
Here's my five words, baby doll. Strong, sexy, mysterious, tats, millennium. Love you too, millennium. Honey, ask me any question. I am for you always. I would be expecting your question, sweetie. Juliana. My beautiful little pumpkin face. I know we haven't known each other for too long, but I love you, and I have a question. Will you marry me? Millennium. P.S. Please don't break my heart. Yes, that's a great question, sweetie, but I'm bleeding right now, and the doctor asked me to get some drugs, and I don't have enough money with me. The drugs cost $340. I would love you to help me out. I don't want to die now. I really love you, sweetie. We have to make the payment by tomorrow, or else the doctor says something bad may happen. I'm crying for your help. From your wife to become, Juliana. Hello, wifey. Should I send you American money or Nigerian money? Millennium. Millennium, get back to me with the details, my love. I don't want to die, sweetie. I want to make love to you and have our own family together. I know you would help me, sweetie. Send American money, okay? So get back to me with the details like these. Try and send it through Western Union money transfer and get back to me with your address as I have written below and the MTCN and text question and answer. Juliana Millennium. She's now using my last name. Uh, I want to make love to you too. I sent you $500 so you will have some extra money for whatever you want. Let me know if you need any more money. Maybe I can come visit you. Millennium. Hello, sweetie. Thanks for sending me the money. Honey, I would need these information from you so that I can pick the money up. I would need that urgently, sweetie, from your wife. And then she lists the info again. So um, my thinking in this whole situation is this person is trying to steal some money from unsuspecting lonely men, and I'm going to waste as much of their time as possible. So over the course of the next month or so, we corresponded. Um, I have 30 pages of correspondence. Not time enough to read it right now, but I will guarantee you I wasted a lot of their time going back and forth from the Western Union office with fake numbers. Um, at one point, my character went to Nigeria to visit her, and they left me at the airport, and there was a big ordeal with that. Uh, there was a lot of anger back and forth between the two of us, um, and we eventually worked it out. I wasn't sure whether or not I liked this person anymore. So I asked her to write me a poem, and uh, she did write me a poem, but it wasn't a real poem. So I had asked her to write me another poem. She said I was playing her heart because I hadn't sent her the money yet. I'm not playing your heart. I love you, Juliana, my wife. Please write me a real poem that you wrote about me and about our love, my love. You know I love you so much and I would do anything for you. Please don't disappoint me and leave me with no poem to show my friends. I want to send you money for a passport so you can come live with me, but I told you I can't be with a woman who can't write in verse. All my kisses, millennium. Good morning, my love. I hope I write it the way you love it. I can't wait to hold you, my love. I do love you and want to grow old with you, millennium. Your next mail should be Western Union details, okay? So that I can renew my passport and start the process. I can't wait to meet you, okay? P.S. And this is in verse here. Millennium is my husband. I love her with my heart. He had a bike. He is handsome than a dove. He had a big beard. He do play me before. He told me he sent me $2,000 and it's a lie. He says he loved me, but he never showed me. He knows I love him and he knows I live for him. He is my love and my future husband. If only he can make things right. I promise to live with him all my life. I promise to have two kids with him, one boy and one girl. 
He owns my heart, and I don't want to lost him. He would be my love of my life. He is my dream come true. Millennium, make things right. I do love you, and I can't wait to grow old with you. Our love is like a river that had no ends. I want you that anything else. I want to look to your eyes like the sky. I want to see your friends someday. I want to make love to you. Millennium is from Rhode Island. He is single and looking for. He had a bike, which he ride always. He had a big beard. He is happy because he is free. He wants to get married with me. Signed, Juliana Millennium, happy married life. And that was the end of our correspondence. Sarah McChesney and Grant Pachoco improvised letters back and forth based on the audience suggestion of buying puppies on Craigslist. Hi there. I saw your ad on Craigslist, which is obviously why I'm writing to you, selling puppies. I'm specifically looking for a puppy that doesn't grow too big because my apartment is fairly small. It says on your ad that you have six of them. Can you describe them for me and let me know how much they are? Thank you, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Thank you for your email. We have six beautiful Pomeranian puppies. They do not grow any larger than pretty much what they are now because they are a small dog. If you would like to come by and see them, uh, they are all here. Signed, Frank. (laughs) Hey, Frank. Thanks for telling me your name. Most people on Craigslist don't do that. I would love to see the puppies, but I'm not coming to your house. Could you please just send me some pictures of all six of them so I can choose before I come? Thank you, Sarah. Dear Sarah, of course, I totally get it. It's weird meeting people on the internet. Here are several pictures of the puppies. As you can see, I sent about 20 of them. Each one of the puppies is in a different outfit in each picture. In the first one, they're dressed as sailors. In the second one, they're dressed as bikers. Doesn't the little one on the end look tough? Anyway, the costumes are pretty much self-explanatory. There's angels, there's spiders, there's a whole bunch of, you'll love the one that's dressed up as pro wrestlers. Anyway, take your look, pick out which one you like, and then get back to me, Frank. Hey, Frank. Thanks for all the pictures. They took a really long time to download because you sent them in really high res. But I finally got through to all of them, and they do look great. I have to say, your sewing is fantastic. Do you have a side job? Because I'm also looking for someone to make me a sailor outfit. Thanks, Sarah. Dear Sarah, yes, I'm a costumer, as is obvious. I only costume dogs, but I suppose I could enlarge a pattern for a human. But now you'll have to send me a picture so I can see what you like, unless you want to come to my house and look at the puppies and I can measure you. Signed, Frank. Hey, Frank. Now that I know that you're a costumer, I'll totally come to your house. Send me your address and your phone number and also your measurements, please. Thanks, Sarah. Dear Sarah, why my measurements? (laughs) Signed, Frank. Dear Frank, I'm single and looking. Love, Sarah. Dear Sarah, I'm a costumer. (laughs) 
Anna Metcalf shares a letter that is a time capsule in its own right. A letter written at a time when the war in Cambodia raged on, and Neil Armstrong took that first illuminating step. Thank you. Um, I'm super happy to be here. Uh, this is, there are just a couple things you need to know. I don't want to give any spoilers. So this is a letter that my grandmother wrote in 1970 to a friend of hers. And um, I was born in late 73. So you do the math. May 9th, 1970, Saturday AM. Dear Claire, surprised? Yes, I am surprised myself to be writing a long letter to you. Hope everything there is just dandy and you're about to observe Mother's Day, that good old institution that mothers today wonder if they have a right to be congratulated for. I, of course, refer to the state our country is in. The youth sure have made a mess of things at colleges around the country. National guards, state and university police have been here since Wednesday. We had the second curfew this week since March 2nd. Classes are trying to be suspended for a week to strike against the Cambodian situation and things local having to do with education. But that's not what I'm writing about, Claire. You and I have been friends for 23 years, although just friends by long distance. Still, you're someone I had something in common with, our families. Remember, we started our families at the same time even had our first child baptized together. Well, I think that friends are for helping one another, Claire, and I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, if you can. Here is the problem. Our daughter, Janice, got in trouble last summer and is going to have an out-of-wedlock baby. <gasps> She's in the Crittenden home down there. The address is 8909 Southwest 94th Street. We sent her down there January 19th. I'm going to be down there when she delivers, which is sometime around June 6th. It could be before that or later. I have no way of knowing. What I want you to do is find me a place to stay, a room preferably near the Baptist Hospital. This hospital is only a block from where Jan's unwed mother's home is. I understand the closest hotel is Hurricane Lodge and is $16 a night. That would be too much for me to afford. Besides, it's too far and cabs would break me up. It seems best, Clifford and I think, that if you would advertise in the paper for a room, that would be the neatest way of solving the problem. Specify near the Baptist Hospital and then I could walk over and be with Jan whenever I wanted to. If you would rather go over there yourself and inquire for rooms, then that would be okay too. The room doesn't have to be fancy, just so there's accommodations and I could go and come as I wanted to. I would buy my own meals. Jan says there's a shopping center a mile from her. I could walk there. I'm used to exercise. I ride a bicycle all the time anyway. But taking a cab everywhere would just be straining my budget. You see, I'm flying both ways and trying to have enough to see my mother on. She lives in Bradenton this year. It's a new retirement home she decided to move into last fall. So with her help financing this four and a half months for Janice, where Jan could be away from us, I feel like I owe my mom a visit. It's been rough on all of us, mom included. Mom has turned 80 now and is living all the way on the west coast of Florida, and that means a longer trip than she can take to do it very often. 
She was there four or five times since January and has phoned Jan fairly often and has seen to it that Jan has at least two other people for company. I don't want to ask the same family friend to put me up because they live in Coral Gables. They've been wonderful to go see Jan at least once a week and plan little things for her to do outside the home to help pass the long time. They've helped her when shopping, they've taken her to meals at times and shows, plus other nice activities. Their name is George and Jenny. They're friends we've known through mother. Now you're asking what price room and about what time I would need it. I should say five to nine dollars a night and around June 6th. When you answer the ad, tell the people I will call them just as soon as I get to Miami. That way I won't have to pay anything in advance. I could tell then how many days I would need to stay because I don't know the circumstances till the time comes. I might want to stay longer if there were complications, but as it is, I only want to stay a week or less. Don't forget when you answer the letter, Claire, to give me the phone number of the people who have the room to rent. Now, it seems I've stated my story, but there's a lot more to it. I could have phoned or sent a telegram, but that just wasn't practical under the circumstance. You need not tell your smaller children why I'm going to be staying near the hospital. It would hardly have been fair to keep still about why I'm coming, but you do understand that I need to be near the home so I can save transportation costs. Now, I know this is a shock telling you this, but things like this happen all the time. It was a real shame that Jan had to get involved with a soldier from Chanute Field last summer. She moved into an apartment of her own on July 19th, the day the astronauts landed on the moon. It happened she was going with or dating this guy around then. She and another girlfriend, they ran around together. That other girl was kind of wild, but Jan was not. Jan is the quiet type and kind of in need of boyfriends. This fella, she told us later after it happened, got her high on beer several times. <laughs> she was not allowed to have beer at home. Jan said she had never but one encounter with a boy. We didn't find out what happened until around Thanksgiving time. She was working at Caldwell where her dad works. It was a terrible bomb to drop and I like to pass out when I heard it. You just don't know what you will do until it happens to you. I decided I would not tell anyone other than my mother, the boss, Mr. Forrest Caldwell, and my sister Mary. We have had to lie, cover up, make excuses, and keep still. But it has meant the difference between being at peace or in shame. Of course, I haven't any way of knowing just how many other people discovered it in other ways. Jan had to get all of her pregnancy tests taken here. She had to go through screening to be admitted at Florence Crittenden, so there was a chance that someone found out through the hospital or the doctors. I just have to live with it. It's really quite a tragedy. The little innocent child won't have a father unless it's adopted. Now, the father is a good-looking guy, intelligent and a fine specimen. George and my mom went down to Tampa in February to look him up at the base where he was sent last fall. He told George how stunned and upset he was, but he was no help financially. He wouldn't sign any papers about his parentage or other things for the history to go down on the adoption papers. George and mom will have to answer the questions from answers the father gave by phone. So you see what a sad experience I will have to go through. Think this is all the important things that you need to know and understand. Send your phone number too when you write. 
Claire, if you're working and too busy to help, do let me know right away so I have time to make other arrangements. When I fly down, we're going to wait until the hospital lets Jenny know that Jan is in labor. She's going to phone us collect. I'll get the first plane out that I can. So the Visnicks will meet me or I'll send someone else to. So you won't be needed only to find me a room. We'll pay for the ad and I hope you have success the first day. Let us hear at any rate with love. How are the children? Do all six of them still live at home? Hope I can see all of you. Sincerely, Velda. And just one addendum. That was my sister, and I met her when I was 20. <laughs> my name is Jane Entwistle, a producer on To Whom It May Concern, and I read a letter written to the criminal who stole my beloved 1984 Oldsmobile. Dear criminal, first of all, let me start by saying you have impeccable taste. Clearly, you were as taken as I was. Can I even blame you for needing it as your own? Perhaps you are the true victim here, so overcome by want and desire you just couldn't help yourself. Or rather, you did, in fact, help yourself. I am, of course, referring to the majestic 1988 Maroon Oldsmobile in mint condition that you felt driven to steal from me. I'm sure given your proclivities for acquiring things that are not your own, there have been many such steel horses in your life, but surely none as superior as the Oldsmobile. I think what was more heartbreaking than coming home from work and going to my car parked under an overpass at the MacArthur BART station, one of the grittier and grimier Oakland stations, only to discover my beloved Olds was gone, was that I never felt I could truly own the car in the first place. And this seemed like one of those awful balancing of the scales. I bought the car for $700 and was paying $100 a month and had five months to go. So technically, I didn't own the car. But I'm talking about owning as in inhabiting, living up to, merging with. No matter how hard I tried, my five-foot, red-haired, blue-eyed British frame could not generate enough swagger to fully own a 1988 maroon Oldsmobile. <laughs> Disregard the fact that I had to sit on a pillow to drive it <laughs> and had to pull the one long, continuous front seat forward as far as it would go so my feet would reach the pedals. It was that no matter where I went in Oakland, and we're not talking the hills, we're talking downtown, Fruitvale, the lake, MacArthur. As soon as I pulled up, people started to laugh. <laughs> when I got out of the car, they would laugh harder. <laughs> and when I got in the car to drive away, they would wave and laugh and then laugh some more. That little Janie Entwistle owned an Oldsmobile was just too much for people to handle. You, car thief, seemed to have no problem owning that car. Your swagger was unprecedented as documented in the letter I received from CHP. 
Mere moments after being released from jail, you came upon my vehicle and using a screwdriver that you left at the crime scene, negotiated yourself a sweet post-prison ride. Not obeying the rules of the road, perhaps because you were jamming one of my cassette tapes into the tape deck, you attracted the attention of CHP. And being that you were a convicted felon cruising in a stolen vehicle, you took off. You led CHP on a wild ride through the streets of Oakland and onto the freeway. They had no choice but to shoot out the tires of my pristine olds. And you had no choice but to try and run them and their cars over, resulting in numerous charges, including vehicular assault. The tow yard where my car was laid to rest told me my car was never leaving the yard of its own free will. And that was the end of my brief relationship with a 1988 maroon Oldsmobile. It is ironic I was summoned to court to testify that I did not, in fact, loan you the car. <laughs> and that we were not actually acquainted. I was terrified to face you back then, a girl who could not muster the swagger to inhabit an Oldsmobile. My fears were allayed when the DA made a plea deal with you. Turns out you witnessed a murder and were willing to roll over if the car theft charges were dropped. <laughs> so now it's many years later. My bitterness, for the most part, has dissolved. And my question for you is, what was it like speeding away from the sirens? One hand on the wheel, cigarette clenched between your teeth. I know you smoked because you put the cigarettes out on the maroon carpet, bastard. <laughs> the cure blasting from the speakers, my only consolation. <laughs> Did she handle like a champ? Did that powerful V8 engine make you feel like a king? I guess what I'm trying to say, you old con, is that of all the cars you could have snatched that day, I get why you snatched mine. Freebird! Jane. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. The musician for this episode was William Hawkins. As long as I'm with you, I'll be alright. Subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes so we rise above the fray. You can also find us on Podbean and Stitcher. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live in the Galapagos Islands, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. If you leave, take my heart, I won't need it anymore. 
need the beating If I hear it, it just makes me want you more As long as I'm with you 